There'll be plenty of activity. And when will be when there's a stable view of what valuation might be. And ironically, it takes a while for transactions to feed through for people to understand what stable looks like. And so once you've once that's out, then people are prepared to transact at those sorts of levels because that's what the market says. But unless you've got enough transactions, you can't say what the market says. Everything's just an aberration until it's reality. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Pep Talks podcast. In this episode, me and Sam are joined by DC Advisory UK CEO, Richard Madden, as he gives the Pep Talks community its biannual update on the state of the private equity deals market. Focusing specifically on how the economic climate has affected the market over the course of this year and what we can expect over the next six to 12 months. DC Advisory are a leading international investment bank who provide buy and sell side advice during PE transactions and other M&A activity. Richard draws on his and DC's unique and detailed insight into the deals market to explain the current climate and inform his predictions. We hope you enjoy. So we're back with Richard Mann of DC Advisory. It is end of July and we always like catching up with Richard as our community know uh, at our conference in November where we talk to Richard about what's going on in the market. And we love to do it this time of year because we usually haven't seen you properly uh, for six months or so. And um, it's very interesting to get your take on what's happening in both the investment and exit market within private equity. So great to see you, Richard. Thanks thanks for joining us again. It's always a pleasure, Sam. So, um, yeah, I mean, God, blimey. We've been, we've been talking like this and working together for about three years and it has been the most tumultuous three years, isn't it, in terms of changes and shifts in, in private equity market dynamics. And it sort of feels like we're there again with, a, with another shift now. We are, we definitely are. Um, I think this is a slower burn shift than some of the previous ones because we obviously had the, the dive down into COVID, the surge back up out of it. There were kind of very fast paced, volatile trends. Um, and now we're just wading through treacle. No one's going anywhere fast. And there's, there's volatility of a different sort, but no one's going anywhere fast. So it feels different and slower and more draining. Yeah, more challenging than, than, than yes. it has done for a while. Yes. So just, just give us a broad sense of what's going on, what's happening in the investment market, what sort of volumes are you seeing? So it, do, it does feel very depressed. Um, and then when you look at the numbers, you realise it is indeed very depressed. So the overall market is down, call it 30 to 35%, something like that, in terms of the number of deals that have happened. Six months January to June 22 versus six months January to June 23. Um, what's really interesting, though, is that in that period, trade bidders have been relatively consistent. So in 2022, there were 1,400 trade transactions. Um, and in 2023, there were 1,400 trade transactions. So a, a degree of consistency that is not met by private equity. So last year, 1,600 deals. This year, 1,100. So a very marked downturn in terms of private equity and private equity-backed mm-hmm. um, bidders in the market. Yeah, 
that that is all activity, isn't it? New investments, bolt-on acquisitions. Yes, it is. That's right. Um, but I mean, to be honest, it feels quieter than that. Maybe we're just missing out. Mm. Um, I think all advisors would say the same. I mean, the people I talk to, they're they're all saying it's it's quiet. But there was a sense, and you gave a bit of this sense at our conference last year that. Actually, you know, come the autumn, things probably will stabilise. Uh, inflation will start to be coming down. Inflation figures are out. We're all watching inflation in, in, a, in a very microscopic way by comparison to the way we used to do it. But interest rates will be stabilising. They've probably still got some way to go up. Uh, but is your sentiment still the same that actually last quarter of this year we'll see more activity than we have done for the rest of the year? No. <laughs> so um, I was criticised after your conference by a number of people for being too negative. And, and the reality is I was insufficiently negative, and I apologise for that. Um, and the reason I think that it, it won't get better is that it doesn't feel better now. In order for it to start picking up for September and October launches of transactions, it needs to feel stable and predictable today. Yeah. And I actually can't remember a period when it's felt less predictable or stable. If you look at the, the global financial crisis, it was kind of easy and predictable because it was all just terrible and you knew that you wouldn't be able to do things. We're now in a market where some really bad things get done and some really good things don't and, and therefore predictability is difficult. When you layer on top of that the fact that you need to prepare to three, four months before you start, if you want to go in September or October and try and get something done at Christmas, you better have been doing it now or then even, mm. like May, June. And I don't sense that there's a lot of stuff that's scheduled for that kind of profile because people can't predict how a deal will go, so they're not starting to get ready. Mm. There's many, many more conversations about starting to get ready now and waiting and seeing and determining when, it, when will be the time, when will be the moment when things might be better. Um, but we're not in a moment at the moment where things might be better. When you're mandated... Does mandated mean take it to market for us? Or does mandated mean you've got it exclusively, you are going to sell it for us, but you're going to advise us to the point of time where we are going to yeah, sell Yeah, Sam, this is the best thing that's happened to us um, in that regard because people really want advice now. And so people are ringing up and saying, I don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and we need somebody's dedicated help to give us advice on what to do. Um, and in ve- most circumstances, the advice is, we don't know. <laughs> you know. We don't know what the market's like. We don't know whether we'll get it away. And in a we don't know market, mm. and I'm telling you now, we're in a we don't know market, best not to do anything just yet. Um, so, I, you know, I think it's a time for preparation. It's a time for really understanding bidder dynamics, vendor dynamics, uh, but it's, it's, it's not a time for rash launches. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, my next question was going to ask, ask about the shape of these transactions, but there probably isn't really any trend there. Uh, I think when in, the, in November you were probably talking about more carve-outs as, uh, yes. as sort of new deals and maybe an increase in exits to follow-on funds. Yeah, I mean, the, interestingly, the, the follow-on fund market has also not been great. It's slightly better than the, norm, the, the, the normal M&A market, but it's, it's, it's not as good as I think I had thought it would be. 
because LPs are quite concerned, the LPs in those funds that invest in continuation vehicles, both single and multi-asset, those LPs are concerned that they're being used as a kind of get out of jail free card, and that's not how they think of life, and rightly not. Mm. And so there's a degree of scepticism there that they're being used for the wrong reasons. And if you remember, I said the, the right reasons are the train is left the station, but the journey is not yet complete. There's a requirement for incremental capital, or the existing fund is out of money, or there's an MA strategy, or, or, or all sorts of positive things. Yeah. But they're still expecting transactions at good value. Um, and that focus is sharp. And there's a problem in the word value because I have never been less confident of my own ability to anticipate valuation. I just think it's incredibly hard because if you look at what happened before, it happened in an entirely different market and therefore isn't really an indicator. If you look at the public markets, they've done okay, but not brilliant. So they're not exactly a kind of bullish view. And then if you look at the transaction experience we've got, you can have a business that you think is worth, call it 200 million, and you'll have bids from 140 to 220. And you'll have a field clustered at 160. It's just <clears throat> all over the place mm. because people are thinking differently as they think about how to acquire things. So if anyone sits in front of you with a definitive view of valuation, I've always thought they'll be wrong and they'll be more wrong or than ever. But what, why, what's driving that? I mean, that's, that's a huge um, disparity, isn't it? 220 to 160. It's not like a market correction. No, I no, think it's we, more than that. It's 140. I mean, yeah, 220 to 140. So in the past, we talked about price corrections. And, um, you know, I think, you saw, I think it was you that said you know, everything that's going out to market is probably about six or eight months ago, you know, which has been corrected downwards by 15 to 20% by everybody. But it... Yeah, on the basis well, yeah, of what you just said, it says there's, there's some funds out there that are willing to still, you know. So there's still really plenty pay. of money to invest. That's the key. And that, and but in a in a field of five bidders, let's call it, um, you might have somebody, hopefully with a little bit of luck, who really loves the business, loves the team, and is prepared to pay whatever they think it it takes to own it. So there's still the chance of that kind of overbidder in a process. What's become more commonplace is that your middle of the road bidder, who in that sentence would have been kind of 160 to 180, call it, is now saying, actually, I'm not bidding that, but there's a chance that no one else will show up to this. So I'm at 140. So I'll see if I can nick it cheap. Just lowball it. So I'll see if I, I, there is a price at which I would love to own this business, mm. and that's the price I'll bid. No more than that, and, and it's cheap. That number is always cheap. And it really is testing the vendor's metal as to whether the vendor is prepared to transact at this disappointing level from what i've seen people are largely not prepared to transact at that level and you therefore hope that you've got a couple of people still hanging around mm. who feel more enthusiastic than that but the presence of the let's see if i can nick it cheap is overwhelming okay what about debt markets uh, what's happening there so for our market, call it 100 to 500 million of EV, the debt markets are open. Mm-hmm. You know, there is, there is a relatively plentiful supply of debt capacity and the pricing is double digit, as you've heard, 
but it, it's there. Yeah. Now, clearly, there are some sectors, consumer, leisure, retail, etc., where it's more challenging than that. But in the main, you know, good businesses can get a reasonable debt package. I think you said last time that you better get the debt sorted before you do anything else when it comes to doing a deal, whereas it might be the thing that you, you do yeah. second or third on the list. Uh, like, you know, yeah, I think I probably feel a bit more relaxed about that now, right. actually, because there is, there is sufficient demand. I mean, and we've done a couple of deals where people have said, I want to wait until I know who the, the, the owner will be, and then in a period of exclusivity, I will work with that owner mm-hmm. on the debt. Mm-hmm. And so I feel, I actually feel, I hadn't tested this until this very moment, I feel slightly more confident in saying that you can leave it a little later because the funds aren't really prepared to commit to that final turn of the, of the screw until they know who's owning okay. it. But still a better position to be in. But what about the mega buyout and um, the 500 million plus? Um, that's not even mega buyout, it's still mid-market, but you know, the billion, billion pound plus transactions. Yeah, I mean, I mean the, the debt is dramatically less available yeah. at that level. And we, we, we've done a deal um, that's massively over-equitized at the sort of billion-ish level um, because the bidder has access to the capital to do the deal mm-hmm. and they're not going to push the debt until they have a better environment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was talking to someone today, a CEO who's in that sort of mega bracket, and um, he was suggesting there are about 30 mega buyout deals a year across Europe, you know, of a billion, yeah. billion plus. And he was saying in the last 12 months, it's been one. Yeah, I mean, I mean, if you are in the M&A group at Goldman's or wherever, then, then it's, it's, it's quite, yeah. you know, there's much more activity, notwithstanding what I just said, there's much more activity in our part of the market, which I sort of describe as the flow market. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we make, well, our business is dependent on a relatively, on a reasonable volume of transactions. If you're in the big cap market, then you need a small number of very large transactions with very significant fees, and that's tough. Yeah. Hence the CVs appearing on my desk every day. So when, um, so I think we know why we're here, don't we? I mean, you know, there's there's been a real shift yeah. in the, you know, big economic levers. Um, Mr. Putin driving inflation that was already there. Interest rates, also very buoyant, frothy market post the first lockdowns, you know, when there was a real sort of stimulus yeah. to get out there and spend money. Um, well, but, so we know, we probably know why we're here, unless there's anything to add to that. But what, nope. what are we, um, what's going to bring us out of this malaise? When are things going to get better? Because really this is, this is hinging around risk, isn't it? I mean, you've always, that's one of the things we yes. hugely learned from you and DC is it's just all about when you're looking to to exit and generate high returns, it's about understanding the risk that you bring with that and de-risking yeah. as much as you possibly can. Whereas right now, there is a very high degree of risk because of the uncertainty. Yeah, but I think the big challenge is that we've been in a period where valuations and multiples have just increased. So if you go back 10 years, you know, a frothy tech deal was at 12 times or 13 times. Uh, and if you look at, at that post-COVID bounce back, it was... 25 times, you know, so it was twice the multiple. And so that period of anticipating multiple growth and therefore value expansion, even if you do nothing else, 
is over. And so we need to get back to a place where people feel comfortable with the valuation equilibrium, and they don't. Um, and part of that is that people have got sort of inbuilt into their portfolio. They've got some overvaluation because they paid too much in the first place. Um, with the benefit of hindsight at the time, it seems sensible. Um, but you know, so, so that, that's an issue and, and a driver of inertia is that I pay too much and I'm holding this asset at too high a value. Mm. Um, and then you've got a period, uh, the, the risk on acquisition is, particularly those high value ones, is if you look at a business that trades, always has traded in a kind of nine to 11 tram lines, it's a really good business, it's really dependable, it throws off good cash flow, but that, that that's where it is. I can be wrong bidding for it now by one or two turns of EBITDA. It, on a business that might have sold for 20 times, I could be out by five to seven turns of EBITDA yeah. when I value it. I, and I just don't know. I just don't know. And I won't know until I sell it again. And so the margin for error on those frothier deals yeah, it's is incredibly painful. Yeah. It's incredibly painful. And so even where people are prepared to believe a small a, a growth plan, as they build their LBO model, they're very uncomfortable about their exit multiple. They would have said, I'm going to pay 18 times for it now, and my exit multiple will be 18. And they're now thinking, yeah, but what if my exit multiple's 15 or 14? What does that mean I can afford to pay now? And so there's a, there's a, there's a kind of spiral of anxiety driven by the fact that we may be in a whole new valuation paradigm. We may not be, but would you like to bet your career and your money on that? Probably not. Yeah. So it's ironically, getting good businesses sold for good prices is much easier than great businesses for great prices, even great prices, businesses for good prices. It's just, that's just hard. Yeah. What are the characteristics of those good businesses as opposed to the great businesses that are actually, actually now harder to sell? <clears throat> so so they, they've got good, moderate um, growth rates and moderate margins and perhaps moderate cash flow conversion, but they're very predictable. Mm -hmm. So it is that if you're predicting only moderation and a business has always delivered moderation, then you can anticipate moderation. Isn't that a wonderful thing? Whereas if you've got a business that has enjoyed excess and been valued excessively, perhaps, then suddenly moderation is not your friend. Mm -hmm. So it, it, it's, it's not moderation in all things, that's a bit extreme. But, but we are finding that genuinely, the market for those businesses is much clearer and more predictable. And you launch process when you have clarity and predictability. You don't launch process when you have uncertainty. Yeah. And so it, it's, it's hard. Yeah. So is your prediction we've got another six, 12 months of this? Is it actually thinking ahead? We've got a general election coming down the pipe and that usually stimulates quite a lot of activity in the transaction market. Yeah, I mean, interestingly, it's beginning to, not so much in the kind of private equity market, but very much in the founder market. There's a big concern about capital gains tax and entrepreneurs relief and, 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 and. As there always is. As there always is. And so founders are sitting there saying uh, uh, that we are having more founder conversations driven by that. 
Clearly, the big thing for private equity is that the Labour Party have indicated that they will tax carriers' income, and yes. so they should. Yeah. Um, we get, we all get taxed. Um, so, uh, and and that clearly does eat into the personal wealth of wealthy people, and that's always uncomfortable. Although less uncomfortable for a for a Labour Party government than it is for a Tory government. Yeah. So, but I don't think that 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 is a. That is not a major driver of, of private equity behaviour. Yeah. I mean, the, the major driver for me at the moment is I've talked about anxiety caused by the economic environment, the trading, the uncertainty, the whatever. There's another uncertainty at the moment in the private equity market. And another thing that is attacking the confidence of that group as investors, which is that they're out fundraising. Um, and they're finding fundraising difficult. And if and that therefore affects their mood, their enthusiasm, their appetite for risk. So again, having a negative fundraising environment or a challenging fundraising environment does bleed through into the deal making environment as well. Mm. Do you think they will? Some will fail to raise the funds, or are we just talking really about you know a smaller fund? I mean, private equity are great at doing this, aren't they? They raise a five hundred million fund, and then before you know, next fund is seven hundred and fifty, eight hundred million fund, and. There's a scale they yeah. most of them like to work up, not not all of them. So are we just seeing right, okay, we well, actually you're only gonna get five hundred million, you're not gonna get seven hundred and fifty. Yeah. Or are we gonna see actually some of them falling away? We will see some of them fall away. Not many. So if you look at the global financial crisis, yeah, many, you many. thought a load would have gone. Mm. And and even some of them who didn't raise funds are still around yeah. doing doing deal by deal transactions. But you know, it's only I mean, it's only really a handful that went left the market. Now, the, there are many more now, and therefore, as a percentage, it may be more than it, it, more than that. A similar percentage is more people going out of business. Mm. I think the down, downsizing of funds will be relatively commonplace. I just so it, it's, put you, put yourself in the position of an LP, and you're looking at this as an attractive asset class, and I think it still is. What we've seen is that the mega funds have done really well and they have been fundraising and they have raised significant amounts of capital, Colour, CBC, KKR, etc. And that's taken quite a lot of the, the, the capital that's available for investment in this alternative asset class. It's been absorbed by those businesses, which means that there is less left for everybody else. No matter how good they are, no matter how strong their returns have been, there is less left in the allocation. And so that inevitably means that that funds will get smaller, even when they've delivered really strong returns over a a good number of years. Yeah. So it feels like there's going, there needs to be, or there's there's going to be in the not too distant future, a long-term price correction, a, a, a price correction based on, okay, we're in a slightly less risky environment. There is more certainty in terms of the future. The, the market is settled, but it's it's a lower pricing, um, a lower multiple market. Yes. And maybe with less money in the mid-market, or maybe the mid-market not growing to the extent in terms of dry powder availability, and the mega market sort of being the sort of um, poster child, the the the, yeah. the Hollywood A-lister as far as LPs are concerned. I think that's right. I still think there's, uh, I still think there'll be plenty of money though. 
I don't, I don't, I don't sense that we'll be sitting there saying, oh dear, there's, there's no one with enough money to buy these yeah. businesses. But the price correction, there, there absolutely will be. Yeah. Um, but it's hard to face up to that when you're sitting up on, on, a, on a ton of unrealized assets. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you've got all of these investments and you think, well, they can't all be come down in value. Well, they might actually, <laughs> they, they might. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, there will, there will be a correction. And then you've got to think also, well, you don't have to, but you should think about what are the returns available to LPs elsewhere? Because obviously in a high interest rate environment, they can get much better returns out of bonds than they used to, or out of other debt than they used to. Mm. And therefore the benchmark return against which you're competing is higher. And yet you're in an environment where your returns are likely to be lower. So it's the delta between private equity and what you can get elsewhere will close. And that'll affect allocation. Okay, that's good. Good sense of where we are. No silver ball or crystal ball in terms of where we're going to be, but this is probably going to be a correction moment. And yeah. It's going to take another year or so to really flush out before we know where we stand. Yeah, because uh, private equity have to transact. And so you know that everything that is in portfolio has to come out at some point. Yeah. So we're actually only talking about when and at what value. There'll be plenty of activity. And, it'll, and when will be when there's a stable view of what valuation might be. And ironically, it takes a while for transactions to feed through for people to understand what stable looks like. Because to begin with, they think, oh, that's just disappointing. That's just disappointing. Oh, another disappointing one. Oh, and another disappointing one. Oh, another dis-. Funnily, the disappointing ones become Real. the new normal yeah. and the new stable. And so once, you've, once that's out, then people are prepared to transact at those sorts of levels because that's what the market says. But unless you've got enough transactions, you can't say what the market says. Everything's just an aberration until it's reality. And so that, that does take even longer to come through. So I don't, I don't think we're coming out of this anytime quickly. What about the businesses in really tough sectors like consumer? It seems like they've had whole periods just for getting extending, extended, extended. Like what's the long term there. I mean, the interesting thing about that is that there's some really good businesses doing really quite well in consumer, mm. and yet they're just not transactable because somewhere on an investment committee, there's someone who will always say no. And if you know that someone will always say no, and there is a veto out there, then why would you start? Mm. And again, that veto extends not just to the equity, but into the debt as well. So there's a very significant number of people who won't lend to consumer businesses because they're concerned about it, even if they're doing well. So um, I think that is, I think there's probably value to be had in the sector as a buyer now, because there aren't many buyers brave enough. Um, and, and if you're a buyer brave enough and the business is good and you're prepared to massively over equitize, I think it's probably quite a good place to be. But it does require sellers to accept, again, disappointment, mm-hmm. a word I may have used before. What's your advice then going to, when you're talking to CEOs and management team CFOs um, about and maybe two or three snippets of good advice? Uh, <laughs> uh, 
hold your horses, now's not the time, or think about your forecast. That's the other thing we haven't really so touched on really, there. Yeah. You've got to deliver. Yes. As a management team, you're going to private equity again. You've got to deliver, especially if you're rolling. I think there's you know, a huge amount of pressure on teams to deliver on value, but also to continue to invest for the future. It just it, It's a really hard time. Um, and that is, you know, delivering the plan is the most important thing. I would say, going back to my kind of tram lines observation of kind of moderation earlier, better to have a conservative plan and to over-deliver than to really, this is not a time to be promising the earth and failing to deliver because the penalty for failure is greater than the, the, the kind of benefits of being over-optimistic. And I think that for, both for you and for your private equity owners and for your advisors, being overly positive is a bad thing for all of those people because you've got to, you've got to deliver. Um, and, and it is very, very difficult and unpredictable as to how you deliver the bidders. Because my other piece of advice is that, that you know, beware Greeks bearing gifts, not, not literally, but, but, but at the moment there is a huge difference between people's professed enthusiasm I, I am a private equity firm and I absolutely love you and I will pay because you've got a brilliant business and what they can subsequently deliver and what they mean by fantastic valuation. So I don't think people are lying about it. I just don't think they really know. And so the, 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 I've always thought that valuation is an art and not a science. It's about the most creative art I can ever imagine at the moment because I have no idea what people are prepared to pay for businesses. And I, I see, you know, if you think about it, most private equity firms see a few. I see a lot, and I just can't see a, pat, a predictable pattern anywhere. Mm-hmm. So it's really tough. So don't don't over promise and under deliver. Don't necessarily believe the blandishments of potential bidders. You know, be really on very solid ground before you start. Yeah, those investment directors and junior partners will all still be out there uh, tasked with rustling up investment opportunities. But when it really comes back to the investment committee, yeah, they're, they're, the, they're the people that ultimately decide. Whether Again, at the risk of sounding like a very old man, um, which I am, um, there are a lot of people in senior positions in private equity firms who have seen nothing but growth. So, you know, 15 years ago, they joined the firm having trained as an accountant. They're 18 years into their career. They're now a partner. And they know that it was bad when they started, but the breadth of their experience was relatively limited. So in a leadership and decision-making role, they have not known a difficult market. They have not known a time like this. And that increases the risk aversion because they've got no real benchmark from their own experience as to what this means. You know, what does it mean? I don't know. And therefore, why would I be overly positive? And so there, there, there is a lack of experience. Now, you've got seasoned professionals and seasoned colleagues helping them out, but they tend to be on the investment committee who are saying, chip 50 million off the price. Yeah. You know, show it, show Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Exactly. They're saying, oh, well, actually, we don't need to own this. We don't need to do a deal. We kind of want to. If we're going to own it, let's make it cheap. Yeah. And so you, you, there is a disconnect between the kind of deal teams who are 
enthusiastic but nervous because they haven't been through this before, and the investment committees who are just nervous, or canny, depending on how you want to express it. If you were a young person, would you go into private equity now? I don't know what it was like to be a young person. <laughs> um, Do you remember the 90s? They would were I go into... Um, I mean, I didn't when I was a young person. Perhaps that was just a lack of opportunity. Um, yeah, I think, it's, like, I think it's a really interesting and stimulating career. I think you, you get to be an investor, you get to be a steward and owner-manager. So I, get, I think you get to see an awful lot of life and commerce in private equity. Will you make the returns that your senior colleagues have made? No. Yeah. Not maybe not, not perhaps not, no. Like everybody else, do it for the love of the of the job rather than yeah, and hope that you get paid well for it. Yeah, you know, a bit of luck yeah, and yeah, good I mean, timing I, behind you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I just it, it will be more difficult, and there'll, maybe there'll come a time when it's easier again. But at the moment, it's not obvious to me how that happens. Perfect. That's great. Thank you, Richard. Um, it's a pleasure. As always, thank you very much. And uh, we'll see you at the conference next time. I'm glad I'm still invited. <laughs> New round of predictions. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers.